0: I met today's guest, how else these days but through Instagram, where my budding friendship with him came through a series of domino effects from this very podcast. Charlotte, North Carolina based Noah Williams is a marketer, videographer, and influencer with over 100,000 followers, and deservedly so, given his taste and style, let alone his palate for watches, whiskey, and wine. We talk about small towns in North Carolina, feeling like an outsider, skateboarding, and how all of those things often lead to an interest in fashion. Noah tells the story of his early days growing his Instagram account and falling deeper and deeper into the world of watches. Now, Noah is one of several contributors to Crown and Caliber and in turn Hodinky, and he's also a bourbon fan with a newfound interest in wine, so we chat about those avenues as well. And the conversation wouldn't be complete if we didn't share some automotive stories, and as a fellow GTI owner, we have fun with some car talk including a dicey speeding ticket Noah acquired in Texas. I'm your host Wesley Smith and you're listening to the Standard Age podcast. Yeah, Mr. Noah Williams, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show.
1: Absolutely. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Yeah. um, I believe you've heard the show before. So you're from North Carolina, right?
1: Yeah. So one of the, I believe it was one of the first Standard Age podcasts I listened to was Scott from Tabor. I can't remember his last name. Newkirk. Um, Newkirk. Yeah. Scott from Tabor. And um, I... Literally, I remember, I don't know if it was him or Tabor that posted about it, but I saw someone post about it, and I picked it up, um, and I've been a listener since then.
0: Yeah, Scott's the man. I love Scott. Such a sweetheart of a guy. Um, Where where in North Carolina are you from, though? I want to say Winston-Salem for some reason.
1: Yeah, yeah. So my dad worked for Caterpillar Equipment early on in um, heavy equipment sales, so we moved around a lot early on. Okay. But I've lived in North Carolina now for around, I want to say, 15 years. Um, Grew up in a very small town, like 5,000 population called Moxville.
0: I know Moxville.
1: Do you really? Okay, you're one of like 10 people. Yeah. Um, But yes, Winston. I always say I'm from Winston because that's like, uh, not to say that it's a big town by any means, but it's a more notable town um, that a lot of people know about. But yeah, born and raised um, essentially for the majority of my childhood and all my teen years, um, in Moxville. And then I'm sure we'll get into it later, but essentially, um, you know, didn't know what I wanted to do coming out of high school. Um, and I went to community college, worked in some church production and different stuff like that because I loved cameras. Um, I was a skateboarder all through high school. So I basically, um, uh, the way all of this started was I broke my wrist and, um, you know, I was down for like six months from skating. So rather than just sitting at home, I picked up a camcorder and I started shooting my friends skating, um, which then transferred into, you know, the first couple of years of college working in production for churches. Yeah. Um, and then parlayed into kind of the men's and fashion interest and I started shooting that. Um, and then at 20 years old, right out of community college, I moved to New York for an internship. Oh, no kidding. Very kid cool. It. Yeah. Never visited New York before, had no um, idea what I was getting myself into, but yeah, lived up there for six months, had an awesome time. Um, so, yeah.
0: Okay, so let's rewind though. Okay, first of all, what boards were you skating? Who was your brand? I was
1: I was into Baker. Okay. A little bit of real because I felt real, always had a good concave. Um, Baker, their boards were always a little bit pointy for me. Okay. Um, but Andrew Reynolds growing up, um, was just maybe not my favorite, but was one of my favorite skaters. Um, yeah, his frontside kickflips were just, uh, epic. I remember there was one day I was always horrible at flip tricks, but I remember there was one day I could do frontside kickflips, um, for like three or four days. And I thought it was the coolest thing. Um, but yeah, Reynolds was always, always cool.
0: That's awesome. Were you into like the DVDs and all that stuff?
1: Yeah. And I actually now that, you know, I work in uh, marketing and a little bit of production, I'm always curious how they license the songs. I remember I had, um, gosh, it was an almost video, um, an early on one. And um, I think his name was One Song.
0: One Song. Yeah, yeah.
1: sure. He had it was like the Killers or somebody that was as his like part. And looking back now, I'm like, huh. So they were distributing and selling this. I mean, the licensing must have been astronomical if they did it the right way.
0: Right. But yeah. That's hilarious. So uh, what, what kind of clothing brands were you into now? I mean, obviously you mentioned that you've been in kind of the fashion sector as well. But going back then, I mean, were you the fat shoe kind of DVS guy or were you like more into like the skating and vans?
1: Yeah. So I, um, I had a brief... In the very beginning at phase. Okay yeah. Um, And then I very quickly realized, you know, uh, Ryan Sheckler, Life of Ryan was very mainstream and not cool. Um, So I got out of that. I was into DBS for a little while. I was into Fallen, Um, Lakai. Always had awesome stuff. Had a lot of pairs of Lakai. I touched on Nike SB for a little while. When the Stefan Janowski first came out, his shoe, was all about it, loved it. But then, I don't know, I'm, I'm a lover of small business and authentic brands. And, you know, Nike breaking into the skateboarding space was always a very controversial thing back then. Right. This would have been 2012, 13, 14, whatever. And I remember I got them and I started to feel kind of weird because you're no longer supporting a cool skater owned and run brand like Fallen um, and that kind of stuff. So, Yeah, I mean, I would say Fallen um, and then a little bit of Nike. But Lakai was always great. Eric Costin, guys at the Barracks were uh, a favorite of mine. The Barracks was like the website in high school. I would always check at least once a day um, after school for their stuff.
0: Oh, that's sick. So, yeah, Costin's my favorite skater of all time. And my last pair of Lakai's were his signature shoe. And then... um, uh, so fast forward to like 2007, eight and nine, those three summers I worked for the X games. So I actually got to meet Andrew Reynolds and Eric Costen, and not to name drop, but it was just kind of like, yeah. I, I was like living inside of a DVD, you know, like that, that, that movie. Yeah. Right. That they put out with like the green screen stuff and like, Oh my God, dude. Like I was just like, They say to never meet your heroes, but all those dudes were just awesome.
1: I think the biggest thing I love about your podcast and a couple of other ones out there are, um, you know, growing up in a small town, being interested in fashion and skateboarding and all that stuff. It seemed very, um, outsidery because I was never super into team sports. I mean, I played baseball, um, same right up until high school. And then it kind of started to get political and, you know, it mattered who your dad was and all that kind of stuff with travel ball, at least. Um, but I remember feeling always kind of like an outsider because, you know, once I got out of that, I was into skateboarding and then I was into fashion and photography a little bit. And that wasn't the, um, you know, wasn't the small town football, um, kind of interest.
0: Right. The cool thing I've really
1: seen, especially through your podcast is a lot of guys have that same kind of root where they're the outsider and they have this interest typically does start off in skateboarding where that creativity starts to come out and then maybe you become interested um, in the clothing aspect of it or the board graphics. And then that will translate either into a fashion interest or graphic design interest. And then same thing with production as well. I mean, becoming um, you know, your group's kind of videographer, or photographer, um, in my case is what jump started me into my um, really my entire career. Um, as it stands at 26 I mean it's still still pretty early on but um, and then that transition sort of into the metal and grunge phase and I'm not anywhere near as big of a music guy as you are um, from hearing past podcasts but that and then transitioning into fashion and taking that same spark of creativity you had when you were a kid um, and you were interested in what shoes you were skating or what deck you had and the color of your trucks and the wheels and the bearings that all translates pretty much instantly into the fashion world where you're looking at different swatches, you're looking at, you know, how does this Cuccinelli sweater jacket go with this Henley, go with, you know, some pants. I mean, it's it's really interesting. Um, And I think that's, you know, that's the fantastic thing about the internet in general is the kids who are sort of the, not the weird kid, but the, um, you know, just the kid who's different than everybody else really sees hey there's actually a lot of other people like me
0: yeah
1: and they all live in la and new york but um you know it's uh it's interesting
0: yeah i mean i think there's certainly direct parallels but the i think the main kind of um the 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 common trait is self-expression right so like that that was the way that you were able to express yourself prior I mean your skateboard and your bicycle were were like that was freedom you know before you had a driver's license you know and then yeah fashion as you get older is what you have for self-expression and and maybe some music too like if you're a musician yourself but yeah it was all about the color of the wheels and like even way back in the day you could get different color grip tape for your deck you know like right I remember when
1: Shake John came out yeah and they had the big graphic on there and it was like the coolest thing
0: yeah, so I mean, I just think all of that is just so important to development and like and informing taste, you know, like we'll talk watches here momentarily, but like, even just taste and watches and how that can evolve and, and, and how like, it's funny, I was this morning, I'm editing next week's podcast. So I was just like editing and we were just talking about how you know, the want list, so to speak of the watches as you get more and more into watches can oftentimes grow, but then on the contrary can oftentimes shrink because as your tastes evolve and refine themselves, then you're, yeah. you're, you're kind of whittling out a lot of the other stuff that could otherwise be future mistakes, you know, oh, absolutely. like, you the know, regret. ones. yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Um, So what music were you into as a kid then while you were skating and all that? What bands were you into?
1: Um, I was into Suicide Silence was always a good one. Um, The Almost was always pretty cool for some lighter stuff. Uh, Skillet, um, you know, a little bit of like Attack Attack. Um, Gosh, Devil Wears Prada. Devil Wears Prada had some really great hits. Um, And then, you know, I was into rap a little bit. Really, anything outside of country, you know, uh, growing <laughs> up, my mom thankfully forced me to play piano. Um, so, cool. even that, I never took to it until I had already quit and like gotten older and realized that it, that's a very valuable skill. But, um, you know, really anything, especially now outside of country, um, and even country, I feel like is kind of making somewhat of a comeback right now. Right. Um, but yeah.
0: Cool. So I guess I was usually one of the questions I ask is like, what was your first job? But it sounds like you worked for a church first. Is that right or no?
1: So my first job, and you can use any of this. I talk the same. I mean, there's nothing that I ever say that's controversial, but my first job was when I was 12 years old Okay. (laughs) and I was at this point already getting into skateboarding. Um, And as you know, I mean, the shoes and the decks and everything just adds up over time. Um and I grew up, you know, in a very uh comfortable middle-class family. But it's an expensive hobby for a 12 13 year old to have. Um so I remember my dad, um salesman, sales manager his whole life, a great salesman. He said, you know, okay, if you want these things that are extra and on top, um you're going to start mowing lawns. So cool. I literally at 12 years old uh had a flyer made up um with, you know, our home phone and my name and everything. Um, and i went door to door uh, to a number of houses in our neighborhood and um, started you know picking up clients and i had uh, three different uh, three different people in the neighborhood who i uh, did their lawns for them actually for several years and that translated into um into high school because you know you could either do that or you could you know work in the, um, the fast food industry and I chose that because it was quicker and better money. Um,
0: so, were you charging? Um, were you charging by the hour? Is it per project? Like you're like, oh, well, that lawn's going to cost X, or is it just by the hour? What were? You-
1: oh yeah, well, because my dad was, you know, in the sales uh, sales industry, he taught me very quickly. Okay, this is what your time is worth per hour. Uh, so I think you know, I started when I was 12 years old, and he would help me. He wasn't just like sending me out the door, right but I think I started off at like $25 an hour. And I remember thinking like, okay, I'm going to do this one yard. It'll take me two hours. And then I'll be able to buy, you know, a blank deck or a shop deck or whatever it is. Um, and that I was very grateful, uh, you know, from that age on, I really had an awesome metric for understanding your time is worth something. Um, and you know, the extra things you want. And now that's even translated into watches, the extra things you want that aren't, you know, the clothes on your back that you have to have, um, and, uh, food, you know, if you want nicer things, work for it, um, and find different side hustles and ways to.
0: That's crazy. He was, man. So he calculated $50,000 a year for a 12 year old. <laughs> Cause that's what that amounts to. It's not a, not a bad
1: place to start. <laughs>
0: that's insane.
1: Yeah, but and you know, it was only a couple yards, so it was maybe Right, right. I don't know, a hundred and fifty, two hundred dollars a month. But I mean still for, you know, twelve, thirteen years old, I was I was doing pretty good.
0: Yeah, I love just that extrapolation, you know, like to just think of what could have been had you done it forty hours a week, like make it fifty grand as a twelve year old. Yeah. Um that's so funny, man. So you went to UNC Charlotte, right? I did. What'd you study there?
1: Uh, I actually went to school for what I do now. Um, So I went to school for communications with a public relations um, focus. And essentially, I went about it very backwards. Um, So I think college um, for a lot of people is great, but not for everybody. Right. So, you know, when I got out of high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I had started doing um, you know, photography a little bit freelance, i shot some weddings. That's how I, kind of what my job was while I was in high school. And I really had a passion for that, but it just, it wasn't there yet. So I went to community college, Davidson Community College in Lexington, uh, North Carolina. And while I was there, that's really when I started to get into menswear because I was shooting these weddings and I noticed some guys just inherently looked better in suits than others. and I, I have a very, um, obsessive personality. So once I get interested in a subject, whether that be skateboarding, photography, clothing, whatever, I go very deep. Um, so I was just like, you know, what makes this suit look better than this suit and that and that. Um, and I got very into menswear and, you know, I started thrifting, going to Goodwill, you know, vintage stores, um, and then eventually, you know, some department store stuff as well. Um, but I started really only for my use documenting my clothing, a ranch on the floor, just for my personal, um, benefit to remember, okay, this looked really good together. Um, so I had started doing that and I was about 17 years old. I want to say 17 or 18, um, started posting that kind of stuff regularly and you know, the strangest thing happened. People took interest. Um, right. and started to follow. So I got even more into fashion and I had, you know, it was a thousand followers and then 2000 followers, three, four, five. Um, and I remember once I got to around 5,000, I was like, Oh, this is something, this is something I should, you know, go with this. And, you know, growing up in a small town, um, fashion just wasn't really a thing. Um, you know, to not to say by any means that people weren't well-dressed in my town, but, you know, the guys had their basic suits. And if they were in banking, they had the Navy suit, the gray suit, and you know, maybe some kind of pattern. But outside of that, it just didn't go a lot farther. Right. Um, so I started to get this following on Instagram um, and I decided, OK, I'm going to run with it. You know, going back to when I was 12 years old and starting to pitch people on mowing their lawns, you know, I thought to myself, you know, why shouldn't I start to pitch people on including their stuff in my post? You know, it's getting a couple hundred likes. Why not? Um, and this was around the time that Daniel Wellington was really, really blowing up. I don't know if you remember them. Yes. Um, but they, yeah, they were the fashion brand that kind of kickstarted, not to say kickstarted off an industry of fashion watch brands, but it really brought watches into that 17 to 25 year old range, um, where it was easily accessible and a great thing. Um, so I remember I reached out to them and I said, Hey, you know, doing this little thing, you know. If you guys want to send me something or give me a discount, I'd love to get one. And I remember they sent me two watches Mm -hmm. and at that moment it clicked. I can get not only products and work with companies that I enjoy, but I can get free stuff out of this. (laughs) Um, So my second campaign, I reached out to Johnson and Murphy because again, small town, Johnson and Murphy was like
0: the nice shoe. Yeah.
1: Yeah. If you went to Belkin, Winston, Salem, um, (laughs) they had the best stuff. Um, uh, and I reached out to them.
0: Good old Haynes mall.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Uh, it's really gone downhill over the years, which is sad, but
0: well, once JCPenney, I mean, uh, it was, that was the, the anchor store right in the middle, you know, it screwed up the whole mall.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I reached out to them and they referred me to this small boutique agency in New York called battalion PR. And they sent me a pair of boots. And so, again, it was that realization of, oh, wow, not only will people send me free stuff, but they want to. Like, there's a whole industry here. Um, And, you know, growing up in, you know, Moxville, Davie County, again, fashion wasn't really a thing and PR wasn't really a thing. Right. Um, So I knew I enjoyed marketing, but what the actual day-to-day looked like in a marketing agency and all that kind of stuff, I just had no idea. Um, So, you know, fast forward, I worked with... um, (laughs) all of the brands that i'm very grateful to now but would never work with again so daniel wellington movement watches um, you know a lot of really not great stuff but i didn't know at the time you know i was naive i was new. um and then i remember i got a a seiko skx what's the pepsi one
0: that's the one i have i think it's the 009 okay it's the 007 i can never i always get the two mixed up
1: Yeah, there's like a uh, 01300. Yeah, anyways, I got one of those. Yeah, and I got super into it. And then I actually reached out to, I think it was Victorinox. Sure. And they sent me a watch. And at the time, their stuff, they were just really starting to get more into watches. They always had their basic um, field watches and stuff. But um, they started to send me stuff. So you know, here I am. I'm 19 years old. I'm starting to get free clothing. I've got a couple thousand followers. And I remember I was going to graduate with my associates. um, So just the first two years of uh, school, and I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, So that first PR agency I'd worked with, a battalion, I'd worked on a couple more campaigns for Johnson Murphy. And I remember I reached out to Angie, who was the account rep. And I said, Angie, what do you do like what explain your job to me what do you do you're in this cool new york office you're sending out clothing you're working with people like me explain that job to me right and she explained it to me and then three months later i finished my associates and i moved to new york uh, to work with them
0: where did you live in new york
1: so i lived in bushwick
0: oh totally yep
1: um yeah and that's when it was starting to kind of come around but it was still a little dangerous this was like late 2015. But thankfully I completely lucked out so I had you know I'd finished school I got this internship and I honestly had nowhere to live so I'd already booked my ticket and I was just like I am going to figure this out so I kid you not two weeks before the internship started um I found this place on Airbnb in Bushwick I wasn't really sure what the neighborhood was. The office was in Chelsea. Um, and I was like, I'm just going to go for it. Um, and I ended up being close enough to two different trains to where I think it was still like 40 minutes or so to get into Manhattan. Sure. But yeah, and that kind of kicked everything off.
0: That's awesome. So, okay. So on the watch front, so when I guess Daniel Wellington led to Victoria Ox and Seiko and all those things, right? Yeah. So was it really about the product being given to you at that point? Because I mean, they were, they were not using you, but like you were the vehicle for outreach, right? Yeah. Now were they paying you as well or that the gift was the piece? So you, do you still have all these watches?
1: Um. So the Daniel Wellington, I actually <laughs> gave to my dad back okay. in the day um, yeah. and I have tried I want to say three separate times now to gift him a better watch, and he and won't take I've it. I've given him Timexes, Seiko's, like <laughs> other cool stuff, and he has zero interest. He loves that Daniel Wellington because it's what his son got um, for free for this campaign. Um,
0: right, right.
1: But yeah, no, I wasn't, um, I wasn't smart enough at the time to know to ask for money too. Right, okay. But really, I, you know, I started to get these watches and I wore them like all the time. Um, so as I got more into the watch scene, um, it kind of opened up my mind a little bit. And when I moved to New York, um, battalion still around, still an awesome firm kicking around, Uh, I'll do campaigns for them occasionally. The senior partner, Jim Kloiber, um, was a watch guy. So I remember he had, um, and again, this is 2016. So this is when watches were starting to pick up. Um, But I remember he would wear, you know, vintage subs and um, GMT Masters. And I just looked and I would start talking with him about it. And at the time, they were actually the firm that helped Tudor sort of reintroduce the Black Bay line. Um, I want to say that was 13
0: and 20. Yeah, 2013, I think. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So as Tudor was starting to make a bigger push back into the U.S. with watches like the Pelagos and the Chrono, they were doing all the PR for them. So I remember we had all these watches coming in. We had, um, ironically, I do think I met Ben Clymer one time because we had Hodinkee coming in the office and I like knew what they were, um, but I just didn't know much about them. So we had them coming in, um, Young Hans, they did stuff for them um, and then the Richemont brand. So yeah, that doing press for them, um, Piaget, I went to the, I've been to the Piaget boutique Um, more times than I can count (laughs) right next to uh, Central Park. Um, That really sort of opened my eyes to the next level, um, which is what sort of pushed me in the direction that I'm in today.
0: So what was like the first nice watch? I use that in quotes, like mechanical watch that you got.
1: Yeah. So this is a very um, touching and interesting story, but I was listening to the podcast you did um, a little while ago with Josh um, from Washingtonista. Yeah, and sure. He mentioned um, Carter. And Carter went by, um, I still don't know, like basically, Risty was this very cool account where you never knew who he was or what he worked for, uh, but he was in the watch industry. And now that he's unfortunately deceased, and very, very rough thing, but he um, worked for, I'm pretty sure I can say it, Maurice LaCroix. Um, So he worked for Maurice Lacroix and he had reached out. We had kind of talked back and forth a little bit. I'd followed him just always would, always uh, comment on his stories and just say, Hey, it was so cool. And we kind of started talking Mm -hmm. and he saw some of the photography I was doing and some of the potential um, and actually gave me my first campaign for Maurice Lacroix. Um, And again, you know, rather than asking for money because I was a watch lover Right. I wanted a Maurice LaCroix. I wanted, you know, I had this awesome, um, you know, case that they had sent me of watches and I was like, I want one. Um, So this was around the time they had introduced the Icon, which is sort of their Gerald Genta inspired um, alternative um, at a much, much more reasonable price point than something like an AP. Sure. So he gifted me that for shooting the campaign. um, And then that really kickstarted, kickstarted me off.
0: Cool. Well, you're a fellow First Omega and Space owner. Uh, what's, what's been your experience with that? So, I mean, I have that watch as well. What, why did you get that as opposed to just the, the typical Moonwatch?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, working um, in the, uh, I guess, influencer space and now the watch space a little bit as well in my freelance work, um, I have a lot of watches come to me that people either need help selling or they're looking to sell or want to know what it's worth. Um, And I have a buddy, Paul, who's a local photographer as well, who um, is also a watch guy. He's got several great pieces and he brought that to me. He said, Hey Noah, you know, I'm looking to sell it. And this was last year uh, in 2020 when the pandemic was still happening. So, you know, everybody was locked away at home and I wasn't wearing my clothing. I wasn't traveling, (laughs) so I had had some extra cash. Um, So I, I really went on a run of picking up several different pieces, but that watch came to me and I was interested in a Speedy and I said well you know how much do you want for it and he you know quoted me a pretty good price and then i said well you know what would you sell to me for and he quoted me an even better price and i said i'll be over in an hour
0: you're like i have a buyer <laughs> yeah
1: i was like i have the buyer um the buyer's me funny enough um and i'll take it off your hands and you know the thing i really love about watches is you know as you learn a little bit more and meet other collectors it's really a great hobby to where you can get into it and either break even or make a little bit of money. Um, so, you know, the watch came to me for a great price. Um, I bought it with the intention of owning it for a couple of months. Uh, I've now owned it for, I don't know, eight or nine months. Absolutely love it. And I remember when I put it on, I've seen, um, uh, anything mainstream I've probably seen or had on loan from either crown and caliber, Um, or my local ad that i've shot stuff for and i remember i had previous professionals before um, that came in and i wear them and i always thought it was cool but there was just something off about it i guess just not having a bracelet that tapered you know not having the quick adjust Um, and when i put the first omega in space on my wrist that slightly shaved down case the beautiful taper of that oem omega leather strap it just hit and I was right. like, this is my watch. This is the one that I want. Um, and it's something I hope to hang on to for a long time. Um, but a very cool watch. The only annoying thing with that, um, and I've heard you talk about it before, you're able to fit the 20 millimeter straps onto it. I have not been. So I've had to go and I bought, um, I don't know, half a dozen different NATOs for it at 19 millimeters. Sure. But other than that, it's been an awesome watch.
0: It's funny, yesterday I just got in a 19 millimeter gray NATO for that watch. Uh, yeah. because I realized when I was doing some organizing several days ago, I realized that I didn't own a gray NATO, which is like, what, like, how do I not have a gray NATO? And yeah, absolutely. yeah, so that was, it was just kind of interesting. I tell you for the first Omega in space for me, uh, it was just all about those alpha hands, that CK29985 and the straight lugs. And then I just, I, I loved it. Uh, The the handset just completely sets the watch apart. Um, And then obviously the case size, as you mentioned, being a a touch smaller. Um, So what is the relationship you have with Crown and Caliber?
1: Yeah, so that's a question I get quite a lot. I I believe in anything, whether it's business or influencer um, collaborations, the most organic relationships last the longest. Right. Um, So I had gotten back from new york i'd finished school you know it was two years later i had a couple of nice watches um, but i didn't have anything crazy and i sort of went back to that mentality of you know i started reaching out to people again i'm really interested in watches i want to grow my collection i want to learn more um let me start to reach out to places so i shot Crown and caliber a direct message cool and this is how simple it is people think it's very complicated it's not complicated at all i shot them a direct message and, you know, I had some good work. So I have um, Windsor Jewelers here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Ben, one of the owners, is a very good friend of mine. Um, he, while I was still in college, had started to loan me watches um, to shoot, to post, to advertise the store. So I had this log of work uh, between that and different campaigns I'd shot. So when I reached out to them, I had already shown an established proof of concept for, okay, this guy isn't, you know, going to steal our watches and Right. Uh, Not great photos. So I reached out to them. They saw the work we emailed back and forth a little bit. And I had an initial three month contract, um, just one month loans, no money back and forth, nothing like that. And that was, I want to say two and a half years ago now, and we're still working together. Um, I've written for their blog. Um, I've been in a couple of their videos and they've just been the best partner. Um, like with anything, you know, I have a day job that you know pays very well and takes care of me. So I really like to work and collaborate with people that I'm passionate about. And I believe what they're doing, and you know, a lot of guys are now getting into watches, and they either don't know where to go, um, they don't have a great relationship with their authorized dealer, um, and you know, Crown and Caliber. I've worked with them. The majority of the work, I would say, at least 90% is completely unpaid. Um, So it's a win-win for both of us where I get to experience great watches and then I'll shoot some great photos for them. They'll use them. They won't use them, you know, whatever.
0: That's cool. But
1: they have been really, really cool. I actually went um, to their office in Atlanta and met all their marketing team and saw um, their studio and different stuff like that. And it's, it's a very cool operation. And I feel like, um, you know, I've heard another podcast where people talk about eBay watches and, you know, there's authentication now and all that kind of stuff. Um, But there's just something really refreshingly simple about this site has watches you can trust. They have a broad variety. Um, You know, they're fair market prices. I mean, you know, stuff like Rolex and AP, if it's gray market or secondary market, it's going to be above retail right now. Sure. That's just, that's what market price
0: is. Right.
1: But you know, they have a very, very cool, set up with in-house watchmakers so it's something i've even i've bought watches at zero discount from them on personal money um so they're just, they're a very good cool company i love what they're doing.
0: if you haven't heard episode one of the standard age podcast then let me tell you about my friend tim jackson as owner of passion fine jewelry tim and his team specialize in fine jewelry as well as some of the finest independent watch brands available i'm talking about groenfeld hobring Kudoki, Roger Smith, Roman Gauthier, Sarpaneva, the list goes on. The staff at Passion Fine Jewelry is literally made up of friends and family, so you will feel right at home if and when you visit. If California is out of reach, you can absolutely email or call the shop and they'll get you sorted. Visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information. As you all know, I'm a huge fan of using the right product for the right job. And like many of you, I appreciate products with a story. That's why I drive a Volkswagen GTI. It's a hot hatch with heritage. It's also why I'm into specific watches like my Tudor Black Bay, And that's exactly why I'm a fan of the indie accessory brand Contonement. Contonement makes a utilitarian cloth they simply call a kerchief. It's smaller than a standard bandana, but larger than a handkerchief which makes it ideal to tuck in a back pocket or use as a neckerchief. I always take one on a bike ride or have one with me as a backup face covering. Not only do these kerchiefs satisfy several functions, but they look great too. Each set features illustrations celebrating icons of product design like the Omega Speedmaster, the Fender Stratocaster, or my favorite of course, a classic GTI. Follow them on Instagram, at Contonement Co, that's C-A-N-T, O-N-M-E-N-T-C-O or visit them at contonement.co and use the code STANDARDH in all caps, no spaces, for 20% off of absolutely everything in their online shop. Now let's get back to the show. Have you seen any differences since uh, Crown Calibre's been acquired by Hodinkee?
1: Yeah, so that was an interesting one. So I, the day they did the announcement, um, I was uh, filming something for my day job. We were in the studio, and I looked down and I had a text from Mark, my guy there, and it was long. And I was like, "Oh gosh, like maybe they're like not doing this anymore. Maybe I'm going out of business. I don't know." COVID was a crazy time. Um, and I look, and he said, "Hey, just to let you know, we were just acquired by Hodinky. Nothing changes on our part. We're still doing, you know, all of our own stuff. Um, the only thing I noticed was." Um, the person, so I wrote for their blog, um, mid 2019 to like early pandemic. So like March, um, the editor at the time was, um, freelancer and she transitioned in Ho- into Hodinkee now to be their shop writer. Um, but other than that, no, it's been completely business as normal for them with my communications um, and how they're doing everything. I mean. Um, you know, I'm sure with time, there could be some changes that happen, but everything is, uh, same old, same old for now.
0: Yeah. Sweet. That's great to hear. Um, what's been the most recent watch you've gotten recently?
1: Most recent watch has been, um, actually one that today's the first time I've taken it off the 42 millimeter black dial sky dweller. Okay. It's stainless steel. Very cool watch. You know, when summer rolls around, I love um, a little bit bigger, kind of chunkier watch. Sure. So that watch, I typically, because I work from home and I have most of my watches here, um, will change out a watch one or two times a day just because I'm bored. Um, but with that watch, that's something I've had on my wrist for two weeks. Um, today, I'm wearing a very cool watch. This is my Nomos um, Club Campus, the Neomatic. Um, this is actually one of 35 um, that was made for the Carolina Watch Club. Um, so it's very, very cool, but as a North Carolina guy, you'll appreciate this. Um, no way you're going to see it on here, but it says Carolina watch club at six o'clock and then it has the North Carolina, South Carolina, um, outlines on the crown. And then on the back, it has a, um, the numbering, um, and then says made for Carolina watch club.
0: That's amazing. And a see-through case back.
1: Oh yeah. That's, so this watch, it's a shame. I really, I wear it probably once every couple of months, um, but I take it out at least once a week. Um, we're in the middle of uptown. So there's a lot of stuff outside. I take it out at least once a week because I mean the case back, just the finishing, um, of the movement, it's just, it's incredible. Um, you can get obviously a blue dial, um, club campus, no problem, but the sub dial, um, is white with a, um, red sub seconds hand right which is the only way that you can get it is, well there's only 35 um and they've done other collaborate collaborations i know um i feel like with other watch clubs i think there's one out of san diego um that they did as well
0: oh cool very cool watch yeah amazing what um well regarding the size you mentioned you like to go for like a chunkier watch in the summer is that because you're not wearing a lot of long sleeves so it doesn't need to fit under a cuff
1: Yeah. And I think there's just something inherently that feels a bit sportier about a large watch. Totally. You know, Panerai, um, is definitely on my short list of things I want to own. Um, you know, I love uh, really the 42 millimeter watches more than the 44. Um, but there's just something, it just feels more robust. It feels like, you know, we're only, um, about 20, 25 minutes from the lake and then three hours from the coast. So, you know, if I'm going out coast for the weekend or hitting the boat um out on the lake it's just something uh, that feels robust and like you can do anything
0: with it yeah i kind of feel like if you're going panerai you just have to get a 44 millimeter because that is panerai you know what i mean i yeah, um, definitely. yeah i love my, my buddy john who's got um it's like uh i don't know if it's dlc or pvd but it's all that blacked out and then it's got the That's california like crazy california one isn't it I was going to say that would be my pick. Like if I were to go Panerai.
1: John is a very cool guy. I've never met him in person and I understand (laughs) that you grew up with him. Yeah. But I remember like mid 2020, and this is the reason I love Instagram and social media. Yeah. We had followed each other for a while and he just started posting more watches and we started talking. Um, So, I mean, we talk once or twice a week back and forth on Instagram now. Oh, funny. Post COVID. I'm going to head up there and we're going to do something. Um, But Very cool watch guy. GTI guy as well. Watch guy. Yeah. Clothing guy. I mean, it all, it all goes together.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He and I could talk for, I literally talk to him every single day. Like every single day on text. Like he's one of my best friends. So, um, insane collection. He's also unlike anybody else I know. And (laughs) like, he's, he is a quirky cat and like, I love him for it. It's the best. What mistakes have you made? Or can you point to any mistakes you've made along your watch journey?
1: In the watch journey? So I think, um, and again, I'm grateful for every opportunity that I've gotten. Um, but the posting and peddling of Daniel Wellington and my, oh, well. <laughs> um, has never stood well with me once I kind of understood what I was doing. Um, you know, when it comes down to it, and again, very grateful they sort of gave me my start um, in many ways. But when it comes down to it, I probably sold a lot more of those watches than I would even want to know. Um, you know, thinking that they were great quality, but now I know, you know, anybody can go on Alibaba and essentially right. get 200 of them for I don't know, a couple hundred bucks and then mark them up to whatever you want. Um, that was something I regret a lot. I mean, the bigger watch sort of phase. Um, so again, before I got into serious watches, but like just overly gaudy, large, um, large watches were something that I regret different big bowl and Nixon. So when I came out of, you know, my skateboarding days, I still thought Nixon was cool. So I had a big gold, um, Nixon that I thought was awesome.
0: Was it the player?
1: It was, no, it was the century SS.
0: Okay. Cause the player, I think came in gold. You're into bourbon and whiskey. I know. Yes. What are you a rocks guy or are you an old fashioned you, you mixing it or are you a straight bourbon guy?
1: I am an equal opportunity. Um, so when it comes to um, really anything but bourbon, um, whiskey, I'm not as into Scotch as I used to be. When I got into it, I was really into like the Macallans and the Um, but I've moved into more of the whiskey and bourbon kind of areas. It just depends on what it is, you know. If it's something really nice like a Yellowstone, gosh, my mind's going blank, like, or something nicer. Basically if it's above $50, I will do it a lot of the time, just neat by itself. Um, but Basil Hayden, uh, makes a really nice dark rye uh, that I'll make a Manhattan out of. Um, and then old fashions, Absolutely. Sure. But yeah, it just depends kind of what the vibe is and what we're drinking.
0: You know, it's funny. I'm usually a bourbon over a rye person, but, um, Two consecutive birthdays, a good buddy of mine, Nate, gifted me... He gifted me the bourbon one year, and then the following birthday, he gifted me the rye. Little did I know that the Angel's Envy rye is like maple syrup, man. It is so sweet and so delicious that it's it just kind of counterintuitive, honestly, because I find most ryes are not that sweet. Um, that's amazing. Do you... So I guess you use different bourbons for what you're drinking, right? Like if you're going to drink it neat, you probably drink something different than if you're making an old fashioned.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So if I'm doing an old fashioned, technically an old fashioned is supposed to be made with a rye as well. Right. right. I do not the darker Basil Hayden, um, but even Legion. I don't know if you ever heard of them.
0: Uh Um, I did
1: a campaign with them uh, over the holidays for 2020 and they sent me some stuff um mitchers is another awesome one Mm -hmm. if you're a fan of uh billions at all um but that is what bobby axelrod drinks in billions you know people right now um similar to the watch world are really into the high end the plantains and all that kind of stuff that's really only a 75 dollars bottle but they're charging two three hundred dollars for it um but you can really do a lot if you have quality ingredients and quality um bitters and fruit and different stuff you're putting in there um, I guess aren't just specifically for old fashions. You know, a bottle of makers is awesome. Yeah. There are really, really nice bottles. You can get for well under $50. Um, Yellowstone is one that's awesome or roses. Um, you really don't have to go into the deep end if you don't want.
0: Yeah. What are you into wine?
1: I'm getting there. So if you, <laughs> people who will follow uh, my personal Instagram you know stuff like Stag's Leap uh, I'm starting to get into Um, I'm very very cautiously getting into wine because like I kind of said with washes and bourbon um, and even cars a little bit I get obsessed over these things and you know a 50 60 bottle dollar bottle of bourbon is somewhat expensive at face value um, but compared to a fifty or sixty dollar bottle of wine, <laughs> that's like the next sort of echelon. I feel like, um, so I'm trying to cautiously work my way in. Um, but yeah,
0: yeah, totally. Yeah, are you finding that you've uh, kind of acquired a taste for a specific varietal specifically?
1: Yeah, so the lighter reds, so the Artemis specifically from Stag's Leap is a really, really nice light red that has enough body where you can have it with heavier foods, but also if you're just casually sipping, um, having some pizza or watching a movie, that's been good. But really the nicer red blends, I think growing up, I just didn't hear a lot about red blends. It was always cabs and Pinot Noirs. Um, but red blends are coming a long way. If you find a vineyard that you really enjoy, um, a lot of time their winemaker will have done some sort of a red blend. Um, that's wonderful. Um, and it's a nice mixture. So it's been good.
0: Yeah, I don't know if um, in North Carolina you'll even have access to it, but I just spent some time up in like the Ojai, Santa Barbara area uh, a couple weeks ago. And um, just in the local liquor store, it was. it's called it's just like Ohai Winery, I guess, is what it's called. So it's okay. not rudimentary, but like it's it's very um, just a very straightforward red blend that they'll just call their table wine. Now they do specific varietals, Pinot Noir, etc. But this red blend was like twenty five dollars a bottle, which is still like not the cheapest thing on the planet. But I'm telling you, it was delicious, man. So like if you can find it, and I I'll text you a photo of the bottle later. Um, but it's, it's delicious stuff, man. And it's only like 25 bucks a bottle. So it's, it's, it's well worth it.
1: And, you know, not to keep drawing comparisons back to watches, but
0: no, that's all right.
1: You know, you sort of have your time X's, which are great value, you know, wonderful, your Seiko fives, which are like your entry level to, um, you know, mechanical pieces. And then you sort of have, um, you know, Nomos, grand Seiko, that kind of stuff, which is in the, Thousand yeah. to three thousand, four thousand dollar range, and then you have Rolex and up from there. Wine is really the same way. So I remember when I graduated college and I wasn't drinking Trader Joe's two dollar wine anymore. Um, you know, <laughs> companies like Nineteen Crimes that make bottles between um, ten and fifteen dollars. Um, that was sort of an aha moment where I went, "Oh, well, I really like this." That's yeah. sort of your Seiko SKX, and then as you get into those twenty to twenty five dollar bottles that's the next thing where you can get a lot of great value and you can notice a remarkable taste. And then similarly from 30, um, jumping up to 50 to $75 a bottle. Um, it's again, that sort of realization of, Oh, okay, this is the next level and I can really see value here. Yeah. Um, I'm not to the point where I can go over a hundred dollars for a bottle. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's sort of, um, I don't know, you have to be really into it to get into that level.
0: Yeah. Have you uh dipped your toe into the pool of Orin Swift? I haven't. Okay, so Orin Swift several years ago, like within the last ten years, they like blew up because they had this bottle of wine or this this uh red blend called uh the prisoner. And so and then they do these really avant-garde artistic and kind of edgy labels as well. So like if you're going to judge a book by its cover, there's some of the cooler looking bottles I'll say. Um, But they've got stuff from like $22 to over a hundred bucks a bottle. Um, So the prisoner, when I started drinking, it was like $37 and I've seen it now as high as 70 not normal, but it's about fifty-five bucks a bottle now. I guess, uh, forty-eight to fifty-five. Um, it's delicious stuff. I mean, it's really good. Uh, they did another wine called Machete, as in like okay. the long knife slash short short sh- short sword. I guess. Uh, yeah, Machete's awesome. Um, and then they have other ones like uh, the ones called Papillon, which is like. He's it's, it's I have seen a, that. the knuckles. Yeah. I've
1: got a local kind of bodega bottle shop thing a couple blocks from me here. And
0: I have seen that and wanted to try it mm-hmm. out. Yeah. So that's, that's uh that's orange Swift. And, um, they've since sold the prisoner label. So they actually don't own that label anymore. Um, but they still make all those other wines that are, that are really, really good. So if you like blends, they, they pretty much specify in, in red blends, um, which are great. So I would check those out. Um, yeah, you're a GTI guy. What was your first car?
1: I am. So my first car was a car I wish I had never sold. <laughs> 1987 Volvo 240 DL. Amazing. And the fun story behind that is it was the exact car I was brought home from the hospital.
0: No kidding. That's awesome.
1: Born in 1985 or 1995 rather. Um, And my mom was a nurse at the time, just wanted a really great, reliable car. So she bought the car brand new in 1987, brought me home from the hospital in it. And then, you know, that generation of Volvo is like the very boxy, just tank. Totally. They last forever. Um, So when I turned, uh, I guess it was 16, um, we still had it, and it was still like a family car that was kicking around. Um, And I remember, and I shudder now looking back, I was so embarrassed of that car because I was the only one of my friends that didn't get a cool new Kia or a cool (laughs) new Honda. And I had this mint condition, beautiful interior, great exterior paint, blue Volvo. Um, And I just, I didn't see it at the time. Didn't see it at all. Um, But I thought that was the coolest car. And then of course, after a couple or after, I guess, a year, year and a half of daily driving it, it just it wasn't fit to be a daily driver. It started having a lot of problems um, and sure. it was costing thousands in repairs and maintenance. Uh, so we got rid of that. got into a Ford Fusion. Um, it was an OK car. I was in college. So, you know, whatever. It was nice. It had, you know, Bluetooth audio <laughs> and I could do that.
0: That's a North Carolina car if there ever was one.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, And again, that was something, I mean, coming, you know, coming from an 87 Volvo, that was kind of incredible to me. Um, And it had, you know, it had a V6. uh, I think it was only like 250 horsepower, 260 horsepower, whatever it was. Um,
0: But it's also, it's also sort of like the anti-accord as well.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I looked at accords and I wanted to be different. So I was like, oh, I'm gonna go get this other thing. Um, and then ironically, while I was still in college, I had just paid off that car and I totaled it.
0: <laughs> oh no.
1: Um, not a bad story at all. A ridiculous one and a learning lesson. Um, but there was a girl who literally I was leaving, uh, UNC Charlotte. It was rush hour. Um, and I had actually gone back to school, which is the thing that always kills me. I went back to school cause I was such a nerd. I had to know what my grade was on a test a day early. Um, so I went back for this extra thing. I got to see that and I was leaving and she was dead stopped in the middle of a 45 mile an hour road, texting, looking down. And I had a car in, or two cars in front of me. What was, it? Yeah, it was like two cars and they both swerved. And by the time I saw her, I was going fifty going five over. Couldn't do anything, slammed on the brakes and just slammed into the back of her. Um, and you made the Honda comment, it's funny. I now have a vendetta against early to mid 2000 Honda civics because underneath that bumper is just a metal rod um and i hit that just destroyed the front end of the car i was perfectly fine um i walked away with really no injuries um but after that is when i could finally indulge in my car guy fantasies and a sign you have an obsession with something is when a normal person gets in a car wreck and totals a car they just paid off they would think, oh no, this is horrible. My first thought was, oh wow, I can go car shopping now and I can buy something cooler. Um, Cause I was making a little bit more money in school and I was like, this is my chance. Um, so I took the insurance money um, and I bought a 2010, um, and this was in 20, 2017, 2016, I bought a 2010, bmw 328 xi the e92 the coupe um the most base stripped down model but i had a bmw coupe and an e92 the e92 m 3 is still one of my favorite cars the naturally aspirated v8 no way i could afford one of those so i bought this i think it only had like 40 something thousand miles on a um car but i owned it for two years i did a, you know a muffler delete blacked out the lights and you know, took a decent car and made it kind of ghetto, as my mom likes to <laughs> say. But that was sort of the first thing where I was like, okay, I finally got a cool car. Um, I love that. And then after that, um, because when you own a higher mileage BMW, they're cheap for a reason. Right. It's Depreciated for a reason. Um, I started, I think, like a year and a half, two years in, having a lot of maintenance issues. Mm. Um, so I sold that for what I have now, which is my 2017 GTI. And during school, I had interned um, doing PR for Keffer Automotive, which is like a dealer group, and I had been based out of their Volkswagen dealer. So I had driven every trim, every spec um, of actually basically all 2017, 2018 um, models. So I knew I wanted a leather interior, I knew I wanted the upgraded lighting, I wanted the um, I'm not as much of a purist as you, so I don't have a six feet. I have a DSG. Sure. Um, but I knew I wanted CarPlay and all that kind of stuff. So I was calling around to different dealers and this car had just come in. It only had 6,000 miles. Um, it was white. It had the leather interior CarPlay, all that stuff. Yeah. So I picked that up and I've loved it ever since.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge advocate as you well know. Um, And I haven't found a color that I really don't like. But what I do like is the white GTI is awesome. And like the red accents pop so much more. Like I have the uh, carbon steel gray, I think it's called. Um, The red is, it's there, but you definitely notice it on the white. It looks, it's super sharp.
1: Absolutely. Ironically, I just picked it up. Um, on Friday, from a shop you'll know, DAP. So, Deutsche yep. Auto Parts, the guys down in Cornelius. Sure. They were doing some routine, like the DSG service and all that stuff for fluids. Um, and, you know, I told them, I said, while well, you guys have it, why don't you go ahead and let's do a Stage One Plus Unitronic tune and let's do some spacers because they're already lowered. It's on an IBOC um, pro lowering kit. So, I wanted to just bring those tires out a little bit. And then the tune is something I've wanted to do forever. Um, I think you said you had the APR, but unitronic, I mean, it's a hundred extra horsepower around a hundred extra torque. Um, so it was a no brainer.
0: Yeah. It's a completely different driving experience. I feel like, and, and honestly now dealers are doing the APR stage one in house. Like you can get a dealer to do it for you, which is only just, you know, uh, verification that it's no disrespect to the engine really it's it's just kind of well, suited for it
1: that speaks volumes you know it's no secret volkswagen has had their issues with diesel gate and all that kind of stuff sure um but it speaks volumes to the brand that you can put 100 extra horsepower onto this two um two liter four-cylinder turbo and it can take it and not only can it take it but if you get it installed at a dealer it doesn't void your warranty Right. So, I mean, that's a testament to that car, but yeah, I love it. It's lowered. It's got a roof rack. I have a a muffler and a resonator delete. Um, So it's a little obnoxious, Um, but it's fine. It's just a rowdy little car.
0: Well, that's cool. So you did an interesting trip with Gerard Perigo.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So tying back to um, the internship I had in New York, um, fast forward two years later, I'd left, battalion i was back in school um actually just graduating um and jim the guy who ironically kind of got me into watches early on um reached out and he said hey you know we got this campaign for gerard perigo um and they want to do an all-american road trip um i think around the time i might have had a hundred thousand followers but i wasn't like huge i only have like 134 now um so he reached out and he was like hey we can't really pay you a lot, but we'll give you a budget of, I think it was five thousand dollars, and you know, use whatever you want. But we want you to go cross country, and I said sure. Um, so I had literally just started a um, a job at. I kid you not, it was a beer product, craft beer production startup, um, which was a very cool uh, year after college, but. I just started this job, and I told them, okay, look, I know you don't know me very well, but I need 11 days off in the middle of this job. And thankfully, because it was a startup, startup culture gives you um, unlimited PTO, which is sort of a farce, but we won't even get into that.
0: No, I'm familiar. I'm very familiar. (laughs)
1: Yeah, so I'm I'm a little jaded, you can tell. Um, I drove from where I'm at in Charlotte down to Charleston, touched the water there and then proceeded in five days to drive from there to Palm Springs and then from Palm Springs into Los Angeles and then from Los Angeles down to San Diego. Amazing. I did the whole trip and I want to say 11 days. Yeah. Um, and I might've even made it a little bit quicker to Palm Springs. Um, but that was around the time I think Gerard Perigo is, it's unfortunately, it's just not as big um, of a watch company in the mainstream as it should be. You know, you see companies like Patek and AP right now with those Gerald Genta inspired designs and the Nautilus and the Royal Oak. And Trois Pergo has a very rich watchmaking history in their pieces. Totally. Um, so the entire campaign was based around the uh, the Loriatos they sent, um, a stainless steel chronograph on a leather strap, and then a dlc coated i'm not sure if it was dlc or solid ceramic um all black on a rubber strap and then they sent basically the same thing uh, for my girlfriend as well um so we rented a mustang uh and it was just an eco boost but eco boost convertible and um, we drove that cross country um and that was when actually i got my uh no that was my first speeding ticket i don't know if you're familiar <laughs> with the um The Prada Marfa art installation in Texas. Yeah, of course. So that's really in the middle of nowhere. Like what you see in the photo is exactly what it is. Um, Marfa, Texas is, I want to say, probably 45 minutes away. And then it's three or four hours away from Dallas. So we had driven down this two-lane road um, for at least an hour and a half to two hours to get there off of the highway. And then it was another 45 minutes to the next town. So, being a 22, 23, whatever I was uh, year old guy, you have a rental Mustang and you have approximately two hours of two lane road, 75 mile an hour bliss. Um, and when you're out in the desert and you're on a road like that, just dead straight, um, you know, 75 seems a little slow, and then so does <laughs> 85 and 95 and 105 and so i was cruising at um i kid you not 120 miles an hour for like um i mean i've already paid the ticket off and everything so it's fine i can talk about it but <laughs> cruising at that speed uh for quite some time and it's just yeah. a straight shot and i mean the ford mustang even though it was an eco boost is very smooth and quiet at that speed um and i we had just finished shooting at the marfa store we had gone to uh actual marfa texas had lunch, and we were headed back And I see some cars. I mean, you can see for five miles out there. I mean, it's just nothing but line of sight. And I see two cars coming up on me and I'm going about 110. And I think to myself, you know, Noah, you should probably slow down. So I had just let off the gas when they were probably a mile or so away. Um, And instantly radar detector went off, KA banned. Um, And thankfully I had enough wind resistance where it got me down to around 93 yeah um but i got my first speeding ticket in the middle of the desert going 93 miles an hour and the officer uh thankfully was incredibly nice because i had a white mustang with florida plates that was marked as a rental and i'm in the middle of nowhere so i mean your mind automatically goes to some sort of yeah. drug trafficking or human trafficking. Um, and you know, it's me and my, um, uh, wonderful blonde girlfriend, you know, both dressed up. I'm wearing like white pants and like a Brooks Brothers polo and a nice watch. And, you know, he, he comes up and he has his hand, he doesn't draw his gun, but he has his hand on his gun. Um, and he's sort of, you know, touching it and looking around. He says, sir, I need you to get out of the car, please. <laughs> and, you know, has me do the whole thing of, you know, putting my hands down and, Rightfully, so. I had no. no fault at him. He didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, because you have to keep in mind, I mean, it's a weird time. Um, you're in the middle of the desert, so you know, ask me if I has any weapon, if I had any weapons on me, I looked through the car a little bit because the window was down. Um, and then has me go and stand, you know, a couple feet away. And then is questioning my girlfriend, um, saying, asking the same questions just to make sure I wasn't like kidnapping her or something. Right. And then ask, you know, what the hell are you doing out here in the middle of nowhere? And we explained, oh, we're shooting a wash thing. Um, and then ironically, I showed him all the photos and we actually shot some stuff with them, <laughs> but I had hoped from the camaraderie, uh, it would get me out of the ticket. Um, right. But it did not. Uh, so right. I, a ticket right. I paid. But thankfully, um Texas tickets don't apply or transfer over to North Carolina. Uh so I very stupidly paid the ticket. Um, which uh if you're listening you should never do, always contest it, always have a lawyer look at it. Um but it was my first ticket, so I was like, Oh, I'll just pay, it's like two fifty. <laughs> um but yeah, thankfully, I think in North Carolina, if that happened, um, I would have gone to jail because like 80 miles an hour is reckless. Um, so, yeah. The story of my uh, Gerard Perico Laureato campaign and my first speeding ticket.
0: That's crazy. That's so crazy. Well, uh, just wrapping up here, what's, what's a what's a grail watch and a grail car? What What's on the list?
1: A grail watch and a grail car, that's a great question um so i think that probably changes on a monthly basis (laughs) um but if i had to say uh right now um gosh that's a hard one i mean for the car i'm really into the um the porsche stuff right now as anyone who follows my instagram will see i mean i i regularly repost you know 991s 993s um you know the the mid to late kind of 80s uh, I think those are the G bodies if I remember correctly
0: mm-hmm.
1: those are quite cool um, I see a lot of those actually around around Charlotte so something like that I think would be wonderful on a nice you know either a clean minimalist white um, or fun yellow or red like a garbs red um, I don't know if that's what the color was called back then um, would be great and then for the watch. Um, rail watch i mean some sort of i think vacheron vacheron's gonna be on the come up pretty soon so um you know an overseas perpetual um and rose gold with a blue dial um would be really cool And those are watches that you know by no means are affordable but relative to the rolex and ap and tech market are a great buy right now i mean a sport watch with a perpetual calendar um complication is just incredible and I think those are at around a hundred thousand um you know the Richard Mel stuff I think is very cool but I have a hard time understanding uh, the longevity with that brand you know I think when you look at the early to mid 2000s you know Frank Mueller um was in a very similar position where it was like the watch to have and the cool thing to have um and you know they're not bad watches now uh, but I, I don't think most people would gravitate towards those um So, yeah, I guess that's kind of what i go. And then I think, you know, if we wanted to go more modern, um, you know, a 991 um, GT3 RS, uh, like a Guards Red or Miami Blue. um, And then I think, you know, a Platinum Daytona would be a very, very cool setup.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, And I'm behind all the way the Vacheron, you know. uh, I don't think anybody does a blue dial better than Vacheron, in my opinion.
1: No, no, not at all. And that's a brand, you know when you're talking about, a lot of people will complain about the market um, being a little bit inflated right now. And, you know, I agree. I think a stainless steel sub at 12, 13, dollars um, is definitely more than I would personally pay. I understand value is relative um, and, you know, places, places sell them like hotcakes. Um, so there's clearly a market out there, but, you know, when you get into the more haute horology, you know, uh, just can't find a lot of the Patek and a lot of the AP and especially with AP having pulled um, a lot of their distribution or almost all of it now, I believe um, to in-house boutique only, Um, you know, for a guy um, that isn't spending millions of dollars a year, I think it's, it's a little daunting and it's a little, um, a little disappointing. And I hope, um, you know, a lot of people will start to see the value in brands like Grand Seiko, Nomos. I mean, there's incredible value an incredible story. Um, You know, I recently picked up one of the 9F quartz movement, Grand Seiko's, the all gray, I'm horrible with reference numbers, but it's like the sbgv 245 or something.
0: Yeah, I'm terrible with them as well. Yeah,
1: it's the gray quartz um, sport watch that they make. Um, I mean, it's accurate to 15 seconds a year. (laughs) The average quartz watch is accurate to around 15 seconds a month. And I mean, Grand Seiko goes as far as to grow their own quartz crystals in-house and then hand select the crystal to go to the watch. So, I mean, at that point, you're really not talking about a run-of-the-mill quartz watch anymore. You're talking about something that is beautifully crafted and finished. It's finished inside. I mean, the case um, on an exterior level, obviously, if there's Rotsu finishing is bar none, but even the finishing of the movement inside the watch that is a a sealed case back. You can't see the movement is incredible. Um, so, you know, I think brands like that, um, will already have, but are going to continue to gain uh, more value in the marketplace and mainstream watch uh, society.
0: Totally. Totally. Well, Noah, this has been a blast, man. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about promote?
1: Uh, no, no, not at all. Thanks for having me on. Um, I guess follow me on Instagram at Noah Williams style, um, uh, for the style content that I produce. And then Noah Williams underscore PR for kind of more, more behind the scenes and watch content. Um, but no, it's been a, a lot of fun talking.
0: Sweet. All right, man. Well, uh, let's catch up soon and, uh, potentially even over some whiskey or wine and, and Raleigh someday alongside John. <laughs> Absolutely. sounds like a plan. Okay, buddy. I'll chat to you soon. Let's go. All right. Thanks. Major thanks goes out to Noah once again, and thanks to all of you for listening. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show, and while you're there, if you don't mind rating and even leaving a short review, it helps way more than you think. Please give Standard H a follow on Instagram, at standard H underscore, as well as the podcast page at standard H underscore podcast. Shout out to Jensen Reed and super beautiful for the theme track, as well as the clear audio for the noise canceling headphones. Stay tuned for the next episode of the standard H podcast in two weeks time. Thanks again for listening.